Welcome to Yesterday Meets Today, Themes Throughout History. I'm Spencer Vollmer, your host and guide as we explore the themes connecting the histories of the distant and not-so-distant past with each other and also with our own more recent history. Together, we'll boldly venture out in pursuit of knowledge, always striving to learn new things about the past, the present, and maybe even a little bit about ourselves along the way. end of October. Time for the week we've all been waiting for, the conclusions and analysis portion of our Halloween-ish theme. We've looked at ancient festivals, modern festivals, and the changes some ancient festivals underwent in order to become the modern festivals they are today. Now we get to make the connections and look at the similarities these festivals share as we wrap up our Halloween-ish theme. Of course, first we need to talk about Halloween itself. Last week when we explored Samhain, I didn't go over the details of the gradual changes that took place from the early attempts at Christianization to the Halloween of today. You may have found that strange for an episode that focused on it, but in truth I felt that the history we did look at really provided the information needed for our theme. Going decade by decade or century by century to mark the gradual changes wasn't really necessary aside from a few significant moments that I mentioned. In addition, I wanted to save the discussion of the modern changes for today. With Samhain being a part of our Halloween's history, we'll cover the important parts of Samhain's later history as we go through today. And don't forget, though Samhain led to Halloween, there is a traditional revival taking place among neo-pagans in various parts of the world. Alright, with that out of the way, let's look at our spooky, scary, sugar-filled Halloween and see if we can find out why different versions exist under the same holiday. We know now that Halloween was derived from Samhain. The next step is to look at how that process happened, how it crossed the Atlantic, and how it became what it is to us today. Where we left off last week doesn't quite get us there. For that, we're going to start with the initial Irish immigration to 1800s America. In 1844, Ireland was hit with the Irish potato famine. The eastern United States had already been hit hard, with most potato crops being destroyed in 1843 to 1844. While it's unknown for sure how the disease hit Ireland's crops, it is possible that ships from northeastern cities may have carried infected potatoes to European ports. Once the disease spread to Ireland in August of 1845, it hit the island's crops hard. Estimates of how much was lost in that harvest ranged from one-third to one-half. 1846's crops saw a loss of three-quarter due to the disease. In fall of that year, people were reported to be dying from starvation. By 1848, the crops were still only producing two-thirds of what they had prior to 1845. And with over three million people dependent on potatoes for food, hunger and famine took hold. This led to political unrest, evictions, and numerous other struggles for the people of Ireland. For our purposes, I want to focus on the Irish diaspora. Some Irish had been emigrating already, with the total around 1.5 million or so by the time the famine began. However, emigration increased rapidly as the famine worsened. In one year alone, as many as 250,000 people emigrated to Europe, Canada, or the United States. The given number of those who immigrated to the United States over the course of the famine is 967,908 based on the census of 1851, and those are the ones who survived. Disease claimed the lives of thousands, 
and those who died during the journey were wrapped up, weighted, and thrown overboard. Many of these immigrants were families who immigrated altogether or sent one ahead who then sent money back for the next to leave. In many cases, these families left no living relatives in Ireland. Of those left behind, disease caused by the famine outpaced the death toll caused by starvation. Fever and diphtheria were listed as the two main causes. Dysentery, smallpox, and others ravaged the population as well. An initial census in Ireland concluded that over 420,000 people died, but historians have come to agree that this number is significantly understated. No consensus has been reached on the number, but the most widely accepted is 1 million deaths. Add another 1.2 million or so who emigrated, and Ireland's population had been reduced by at least 20% between 1846 and 1851. A devastating time for Ireland. For the nearly 1 million who arrived in America, new challenges awaited. They weren't welcomed with open arms. Protestants with English ancestry were downright intolerant of them. These were people whose ancestors had fled Catholic influence. There was a fear that Irish Catholics would corrupt children and teach them to bow to the Pope, that they would overthrow the United States government to establish Catholicism as the law of the land. Believe it or not, this paranoia survived well into the 1900s. Their search for work was blocked by discrimination. After 1860, Irish were singing songs about signs and newspaper notices that read, No Irish Need Apply, as part of a Help Wanted ad. English singer F.R. Phillips wrote a song about signs in London, and Irish Americans adapted it to their own feelings of discrimination. The jobs they did manage to secure were menial and dangerous. They frequently took a lower pay than others were willing to work for. They worked in textile mills, blacksmiths, stable workers, and other working-class jobs. Discrimination didn't end there. Illustrators produced sketches that portrayed the Irish in negative ways. The prejudice was plain, and it was strong. As with other struggles for equality, the Irish immigrants faced a long and difficult road. They started gaining a foothold in American life in the 1890s, aided as immigrants from China and southeastern Europe provided a new target for the anti-immigration groups. The change was gradual, but eventually society reached a point where we can see how these immigrants strengthened our nation, not weakened it. Though sadly, some discrimination lives on to this day. So it took time for things to get better for the Irish. They persisted and managed to make strides in improving their lives and as a result helped to improve the United States. I'm going to save those details for another day in a theme that will let them be front and center. Halloween didn't immediately take root, especially in the New England states. Remember from last month that Puritan Protestant families were the primary arrivals to that area, and as we mentioned, they didn't take kindly to the Irish being there at all, let alone their celebrations. That isn't to say the holiday didn't exist there, but it was extremely limited. Their strong opposition to both the Irish and the holiday kept it primarily out of the region. Maryland and southern states were the first to embrace this new celebration. Catholic colonists in the states already recognized All Hallows' Eve, as did Anglicans. Halloween celebrations started to emerge in the 18th century Irish immigrant communities. This was during that time that they were taking the menial and dangerous jobs for lower pay than the working class would accept. 
And when I say community, I mean a small area crammed with people. The Lower East Side of New York was a concentrated area for immigrants, both Irish and German, in the 19th century. Single-family homes were converted into apartments or new tenement housing was built. Typically, a tenement building was five to seven stories tall and used almost the entire lot on which it was built. So, no real yards or other outdoor areas were accustomed to now. City regulations indicate these were 25 feet wide by 100 feet long. Ventilation was poor in the interior rooms, there was less than a foot between the buildings, and only street-facing rooms got any light. Later tenements were built cheaply and were often unsafe. Keep a lookout on social media. I'm going to post at least one picture of this housing to help you see just how crammed they were. Eventually, in 1867, the Tenement House Act was enacted with new construction regulations, such as one toilet per 20 residents, when enforced, of course. By 1889, little had changed. If you're interested in learning about this topic, take a look at How the Other Half Lives, published by Jacob Reese in 1890. Reese had experienced immigrant life directly and as a police reporter for several newspapers. His own photographs were included in his text and managed to draw attention to the plight of these people both in America and around the world, leading to a far more adamant call for reform. It's a bit of a side note unrelated to Halloween, but it's worth a read. So back to early Halloween, confined to these small areas. Celebrations of it and other festivals were limited by what meager means these people had. It wouldn't become widespread until Irish immigrants established themselves in other parts of the country. Through the changes of the late 19th century and into the beginning of the 20th is when we see the assimilation of Halloween into society from coast to coast, and among communities of all kinds. Well, maybe not all, but many or even most. It was that flood of immigrants during the famine that really helped make Halloween so widely popular. It's interesting how the course of history goes. This famine that devastated Ireland also caused the diaspora that spread the adaptive and enduring Irish culture to our shores, including the now widely celebrated Halloween. So now Halloween is here. We've explored how it got here as the challenges the Irish and their culture faced along the way. Before we start making our connections with the other festivals discussed this month, let's take a look at the various forms Halloween has taken. As it spread in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, there was a push to make it more fun, family-friendly. To bring about the widespread adoption taking place at this time, they wanted to take out the darker and more religious aspects. Pranks and witchcraft were replaced with community get-togethers. Spirits who once visited the land of the living became harmless ghosts. Newspapers and community leaders directed parents on how to embrace this new celebration. Nothing frightening or grotesque, just good family fun as defined by the time. By the 1930s, this new Halloween was an established holiday. Parades and parties involving entire towns became common. Unfortunately, vandalism became a problem, but it was brought under control by town leaders by the 1950s. By this point, the holiday had become focused on young children more than anyone else, likely due in part to the baby boom that peaked in the latter part of the decade. At this point, trick-or-treating had emerged, or re-emerged. While the course of trick-or-treating in the U.S. isn't entirely clear, 
One theory suggests it initially came to be in the 1930s when mischief and vandalism on Halloween were a serious issue. Trick-or-treating as a community activity emerged to help stop it, but World War II put a stop to it due to sugar rationing. Then, in the 1950s, with the baby boom, it became a tradition once more among the cities and newly built suburbs. Also, it was discovered that pumpkins are excellent for carving jack-o'-lanterns. At which point, the candy companies saw their opportunity and took it. So that's one version. Obviously not the only one. Another form we have today embraces the scary, grotesque, darker side. Decorations are made to be scary rather than cartoonish. Witches, ghosts, zombies, and all manner of things make up this scarier side of Halloween. It's a day where all things scary find a home. Sometimes costumes follow this creepy pattern, but not always. Parties and other aspects tend to be less aimed at young kids and more for adults. Not to say kids aren't a part of it. I know some kids that love this part of Halloween almost as much as I do. There's another version that may not necessarily be considered Halloween, but I've seen it often enough to mention. Some celebrate Halloween as a fall harvest day. That is, they'll still decorate with pumpkins, but not things like skeletons or bats or other common symbols of Halloween. They may have a sign that says Happy Halloween, but for the most part, the decorations fall on a neutral side. Maybe some cute little scarecrows or something. Like I said, not necessarily Halloween, but still taking place alongside it. We have a whole host of other things, too. Haunted houses are big. Competitions are held for some seriously incredible pumpkin carving and baking. Some places have competitions for the best decorations. And across all forms of celebration, there's always that feeling in the air. That uniquely Halloween feeling. Perhaps it's just psychological, or something related to the weather. Or who knows, maybe the Celts were right. Hmm. In any event, that's our Halloween in a nutshell. I've said before, it's my favorite time of the year. I love the creepy and scary, but I do enjoy other parts of the holiday too. Except trick-or-treating. I don't have kids, and the kids on my street are too scared of my dark driveway, so I always just end up eating way too much candy. Alright, time to make some connections. Probably the biggest connection is the presence of the dead and other spirits. In every single festival and celebration we explored, they were present in some form. Anthesteria, the three-day festival we talked about in ancient Greece, primarily Athens, included some souls of the dead. In this case, they were Keres, who returned from the underworld. Because they were angry spirits, having suffered violent deaths, the Athenians sought to protect themselves on the first day. Then, on the third day, they provided offerings specifically for the spirits in order to send them back to the underworld. Lemuria, also a three-day festival, took place in ancient Rome and was focused entirely on spirits of the dead. Again, the spirits were angry and malevolent, though this is where we first saw ancestral spirits. Given the personal nature, it made sense that during the festival they were in individual homes. Each household performed their rituals to propitiate these spirits, finishing with the use of black beans, remember, they were believed to be capable of housing souls of the dead, and banging two pieces of bronze to send the spirits away. Still in ancient Rome, we talked about Feralia. Again, we're looking at their ancestors, though this time the spirits were being preemptively appeased rather than waiting for them to emerge. 
Only if the Romans failed in their offerings were these spirits said to rise in anger. In ancient Egypt, what little we know of the Wag Festival involved souls that had died but not yet journeyed to the underworld. People gathered to honor the dead and send them on their way. The Wadi Festival involved the souls returning to the world of the living. Images of the deceased and other offerings were taken to the necropolis in western Thebes for a celebration where the souls of the dead joined in and all honored the god Amun. So in Egypt we saw spirits, but they weren't angry as the Greco-Roman spirits were. In China, we looked at the Hungry Ghost Festival, which is still observed to this day. During this month-long festival, it is said that the gates of hell open and allow the dead to wander freely. Again, we have ancestral spirits, primarily those who have been neglected by their descendants or who never received a proper send-off. As a result, they are considered angry spirits. Offerings are made throughout the month both for one's own ancestors as well as any other spirits who may wander nearby. To end the festival, paper lanterns are used to send the spirits back to the afterlife, similar to what took place in the Wag Festival. The Day of the Dead is more celebratory in nature. The spirits returning on November 1st and 2nd aren't angry. On the first day, the gates of heaven open, or in some versions, the border between the living and the dead dissolves, to allow the spirits of children to return for 24 hours, and on the second, the same takes place for adults. They're greeted by vibrant altars and offerings, including food which they consume the essence of before the living eat it. These spirits are joining for a celebration, not to cause any sort of trouble. In Samhain, we encountered spirits believed to be outright dangerous. Similar to some other festivals, the barriers between the physical and spiritual worlds broke down. The majority of the beings crossing over caused some kind of trouble and needed to be propitiated or protected against. The earliest spirits were monsters and fairies. Beings from myths such as Stingy Jack were also important. It wasn't until later that ancestral spirits became prominent in the form of the Dumb Supper tradition. These were among the few who were good spirits. Following Christianization attempts, no good spirits remained. All were evil and propitiating with offerings continued. In American Halloween, we initially lost the dead and other spirits as the holiday was converted to what was seen as a more family-friendly version without the pagan aspects. The idea of ghosts remained, but these weren't the spirits that needed to be propitiated or protected against. They also weren't ancestral spirits. The ancestors were just dead and gone and did not return to Earth. Think of Casper the Friendly Ghost. He was originally created in the late 1930s. After one of the creators went to fight in World War II, the other sold the rights and the first animation was released in 1945. He doesn't want to scare anyone as his three uncles did. He just wants to make friends. And though he's a ghost, in his initial conception he was not the ghost of someone who died. He was just a ghost. That's it. While he's not Halloween-specific, you can see a new mindset that developed regarding ghosts along the same time that Halloween was spreading. Of course, with the side of Halloween that embraces the darker side of the holiday, a more traditional take on ghosts and spirits is present again. Not in the sense that they're believed to have crossed over from the spirit world and offerings must be made to keep them happy, though I do know a few people who go to a cemetery at some point on Halloween day. I can't say that I know what they do, 
but it does involve respecting the dead in some way. Depictions of ghosts in decorations, movies, and other media often involve scary ghosts, the type that want to cause trouble, even if that trouble is just making you jump at a haunted house. So you can see that the presence of ghosts and spirits is in all of these festivals, just in different forms. Scary, angry, ancestral, cute, friendly. The idea of spirits interacting with the human world seems to emerge in many societies, and it's part of our Halloween too. Though, keep in mind that just because spirits aren't involved as much doesn't mean the dead aren't. Cemeteries and graves are everywhere during Halloween. It's just that our returning dead tend to be zombies, reanimated bodies without the souls that inhabited them. So, it's kind of similar. Let's look at appearances next. Costumes, clothing, makeup, and any other personal aesthetics. What we have from the ancient festivals doesn't really indicate any use of costumes. That isn't to say they weren't there, but we don't have any information. From what I've gathered, the Hungry Ghost Festival doesn't really involve costumes either. The Day of the Dead festivals definitely involve some dressing up. I don't know if I'd call them costumes, but they are definitely a special part of the day. Many women dress up as some versions of La Calavera Katrina. Some even have the face paint to create the sugar skull effect. Some, but not all, dresses are elaborate and fancy, complete with a large fancy hat. Men dress up as well, taking on a more masculine appearance, but still in a similar style. Unlike Halloween or Samhain, these styles are mostly, if not entirely, within the same aesthetic. You don't see a wide variety of costumes as you do during Halloween. Though in American Halloween, you might see costumes stylized from Day of the Dead, including La Calavera Katrina. As with the rest of the Day of the Dead festivities, these looks are all meant in celebration. Not to scare spirits away, but to enjoy the festival with them and honor them. Samhain had costumes, but for a different reason. Early on, people who needed to go out after dark during Samhain dressed as animals or monsters in order to protect themselves from the angry spirits. This wasn't for fun or celebration, but for protection. Remember that the spirits of the time were not good or peaceful. Mumming and guising didn't emerge until the 16th century, at which time people began dressing up and going door to door singing songs. So the wearing of costumes went from a matter of protection to one of fun and sometimes mischief. Costumes are interesting when we look at American Halloween. They branch with the different aspects of Halloween that we've talked about. In any version, whatever scaring takes place is about fun pranks on other people. Spirits of any kind have nothing to do with it anymore. In the more fun and child-focused part of Halloween, the costumes are, appropriately, often fun. Perhaps a little scary. Things like that little pumpkin outfit for little kids, little cartoonish devils, various animals, that ghost made of a white sheet, and others have long been staples. Alongside those are the many costumes based on whatever is popular at the time. None of these are designed to scare spirits and protect the kids. They're all about the fun for the kids, and for adults as well. No doubt there's a little mischief mixed in there too. On the other side, we see scarier costumes. Lifelike werewolves, zombies, monsters, killers from scary movies, and all manner of costumes designed to actually be scary. 
some done in serious detail, others meant to be funny or ironic. You're likely to see this style aimed more at adults. Blood, guts, and gore tend not to be targeted at children. Still, they're all about the enjoyment of Halloween. Scaring is typically good-natured, as is other mischief. Most curious is what some people do to their pets. I'm not sure how old the practice is, but for modern Halloween, many people will dress up their dogs, cats, and sometimes other kinds of pets. There's all kinds of costumes out there. Some look like clothes people wear, others look like monsters, and some even look like other animals. Now here's the curious part. Go back to when I talked about disguises in Samhain. Even in some of the earliest versions, some people dressed as monsters, others dressed as animals. I suppose it's some kind of full circle situation, especially when the costumes make the animals look like people. I wonder what the ancient Celts would think of this. Next up, let's look at food, drinks, and trick-or-treating where it applies. Nearly all of the ancient festivals we discussed involved food, and Thysteria involved drinking wine, which is no surprise for a festival dedicated to Dionysus. They even had drinking contests. Lemuria didn't involve eating, but black beans were used to help cast the souls out. For Feralia, we saw offerings of food brought to ancestral tombs. Grain, salt, bread, and wine were among the offerings listed. Again, the food wasn't eaten. The Wag Festival in Egypt didn't feature food, at least not that we know of. The Wadi Festival certainly did, with feast being a part of its other name, the beautiful Feast of the Valley. Food and drink were brought to the graves and the souls of the dead celebrated with the living, which I mentioned before was all in worship of the god Amun. Over in China during the Hungry Ghost Festival, food was among the offerings made to the souls of the dead, and it still is today. Along with other offerings, the offerings of food were not to be touched, or else the person who did so would bring misfortune on themselves. On the 14th day, they bring samples of food to a big offering table for the souls to feast on, all to keep the souls happy and help send them on their way. In the Aztec precursor to the Day of the Dead festival, we first saw food being offered to the souls of the dead who were still making the journey to Mictlan. They believed the food and drink, along with tools, would reach the person and help them on their way. In the modern celebration, we still see food being used as an offering. However, instead of helping the dead on their journey to Mictlan, now food is put out for the dead to enjoy when they arrive in the world of the living. What's left out is based on what the person liked while they were alive and is eaten by the living after the festival once the essence has been consumed by the dead. So for this food, it feeds both the spirits and the living. Samhain was a harvest festival, so the presence of food was immediate. The day was spent gathering the harvest and slaughtering meat to store for the winter. Some of this harvest was left out as an offering to propitiate the spirits who arrived on earth during Samhain. Apples and hazelnuts were a part of divination rituals, and we even see apple bobbing in individual homes. Later on, Dumb Supper emerged, where good ancestral spirits were invited in and joined in this celebratory feast. Here, the food itself served as an indicator of when the supper began as well as when it ended, and that decided when the spirits arrived and when they departed. 
Finally, with mumming and guising, the people who were dressed up and singing would receive cakes from each house they went to. Now we arrive again in American Halloween. Food is present in a form. At parties, you'll often find drinks at the very least, and maybe some finger foods. All sorts of food items also get Halloween variants. Lollipops made to look like spiders or skeletons, for example. Spaghetti turned into brains. Cakes that bleed when you cut into them. Cupcakes with those little plastic rings made in Halloween shapes. All sorts of things. But of course, the real objective here is candy. That's the big one. That's the one that fills entire grocery store aisles. And trick-or-treat is the big way for kids to get it, which seems to have evolved from the mumming and guising of Samhain. But instead of singing, the kids say trick-or-treat as established in the early 1900s. And instead of cakes, they get candy. Happy kids, happy candy companies, happy dentists. And also remember I mentioned apple bobbing. At some parties during Halloween, you might find that, which originated with the Samhain traditions. While we're here with food and food items, let's look at the jack-o'-lantern. There's really only one connection to be made here. Samhain started the tradition by carving turnips, going in line with the story of Stingy Jack, who got himself locked out of heaven and hell, forced to wander the earth with only a turnip and burning coals to light his way. We do the same in Halloween, primarily with pumpkins, carving them out not just as scary faces, but as anything you can imagine. For some people, it's an art form that they train for years to perfect. For some of us, it's two eyes, a nose, and a mouth with a few teeth if we manage to avoid cutting them off. Then add a candle, be it wax and flame or electric, placing it inside, and then put the entire jack-o'-lantern outside for people to see. Another Samhain tradition, but without the spirits or the scary stuff. And of course, there's pranks. A connection only shared with Samhain. Toilet papering houses, scaring people, and other good-natured, if messy, pranks. Of course, there's always some who will take it too far and wind up committing vandalism or other pranks that cross the line into criminal activity, just as they did back in the 1930s. Where ancient Samhain blamed tricks on the fairies, today it's generally known that humans are responsible, though you can never be too sure what age they are. Some kids and adults both seem to enjoy Halloween pranks a bit too much. And that's that. See any points that I didn't talk about? Feel free to post them and start a discussion. Halloween is Saturday. Have any plans? Feel free to share them. Have some fun and, of course, discuss anything about this month's theme. As for me, I missed my traditional movie marathon last year. Definitely not going to miss it this year. Keep an eye on social media this Friday for the reveal of November's theme, which will start next Tuesday. Until then, take care. Mm -hmm.